welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I'm Ben Fell, and together we're going to be discussing the funny side of psychology. But first, Tim, how are you? Uh, I think that's a big question to spring on me. I'm pretty okay. sleepy. <laughs> well, how are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm good, thanks, Tim. I realised that because we always have a little pre-call before we record the podcast, we never, like convey any sort of significant level of basic courtesy when we begin the podcast so i figure we should we should amend our introduction to include yes some basic greetings okay hello ben i hope you're having a nice week i am having a nice week i know that you're not having the best week but i hope that you're managing okay yeah i would say that's about how it's going (laughs) i have found interesting and new reserves of strength to help with some of the things i have gone through this week that which does not kill me makes me stronger etc except for polio (laughs) that's not my joke i can't i know it's not your joke joke, but it's still a good joke yes unless you have polio i think we're relatively safe about our listeners not being in iron lungs (laughs) and if you do are in an iron lung and you want to email in then uh hopefully you have a computer built into it if the ghost of Ian Drury is listening, we are sorry. Hey, isn't Ian Drury the one who did, with the Blockheads, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, which gave us one of our episode titles? He did, and they did, and yes, and he was also played by Andy Serkis in the films. Hey, it's interesting that you mention Andy Serkis, because uh, there's, there's some monkeys in today's episode, or some uh, apes. <laughs> there are, it's true, it's true. Um, and Andy Serkis is a monkey, so this is good. Uh, a monkey he's just the foremost performer of monkeys in <laughs> if you want a monkey you go to andy circus um <laughs> hey the oscars happened it's true it's true they did i i know the artist won basically everything like won all the things but that's not Pretty particularly much. interesting hugo won all of the lesser awards yeah um so i've seen at least one winner of oscars this year good i haven't um is there any feedback this week, Tim? Uh, yes, a little bit, um, including a Mr. Joke point out, <laughs> which I'm not sure if that's good feedback or bad feedback, uh, but from <laughs> regular feedback, regular um, back feeder. I don't like that word. <laughs> I like that word. Uh, Sam said, uh, listening to the bit on voxel based morphometry, I was convinced there was going to be a joke about voxel based morphometry, as in, you know, the place in London that makes the cars. <laughs> Right. <laughs> he says, I'm, I'm not sure what that entails, though. Anyway, great show as usual. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure how you can make a voxel-based commentary joke. Having now heard that feedback, I think it was positive feedback. Yes, uh, except that maybe to say that in uh, Europe, when you do voxel-based morphometry, it's known as opal-based morphometry. Come on, that's really good. You've no, got to give me credit for actually coming up with a joke. <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't. <laughs> Uh, anyway uh, is that is that the no 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 no. well there's one other bit of feedback if you might remember the last week or the week before i uh you know almost accidentally attempted to start some podcast beef with uh charlotte from the uh if it moves critique it podcast anyway uh i uh she contacted me on uh twitter to (laughs) respond to my apology saying i've forgiven you and by forgiven mean been tracking you like a stalking lion for the past four days to take bitter revenge Shah, little kiss (laughs) <laughs> a little kiss on the end so you wouldn't think i was serious and would let your guard down little kiss i said hey being tracked but like a stalking lion and a couple of tweets ended with a little kiss isn't really that much of a burden if anything it's the opposite she said you won't be saying that when i'm standing outside your house roaring like the mgm intro and i said that's basically your version of say anything right which for those who don't know is the bit where john cusack holds up the boombox uh and she said uh, yeah i follow it up by opening a record sh- shop with jack black and finding the lost princess anastasia it's a complex plan to which that I, is a complex plan. <laughs> I finished by saying, okay, that's fine. I'm just waiting for the puppetry phase. So if you know your John Cusack movies, <laughs> we were having quite the, uh, the John Cusack exchange going on there. The John Cusack off. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that his, like, uh, if he married Katie Sackoff? Um, what's their, like, children's surname? Pretty much John Cusack off. Anyway. Um, good. good. Well done. I would Photoshop that. That is... We should we should do a, fa- uh, a face merge with our face merging software of John Cusack and Katie Sackhoff to find out what their kids would look like. Hey, I was planning to put in some face merges in the um, show notes, but 
I can't be bothered to do some new ones. Oh, fair enough. I don't even know if I still have the software on this computer. Yeah, I was looking for it the other day, um, but I think possibly it's been banned by the Geneva Convention. <laughs> if it hasn't, then it should be. Huh. Anyway, if you're is that in the... why you have to look at the show notes at psychomedia.wordpress.com? <laughs> is that the end of the feedback? I'm sorry, I, I'm always really eager to get to the end of the feedback, possibly because I never get any. Yeah, well, it's because I have. Well, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. The the answer to that is contact at Team Psychomedia on Twitter more than at Tetrarch Angel, please. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. You, you always say that, but <laughs> I'm not bitter. I'm sure. I'm disgusted. Ooh, spoiler. Um, so what have you done this week? This, this is going to be one of those weeks. Yeah, it kind of is. Seems to be turning out that way. Uh, what have I done this week? Well, apart from anything connected with disgust, um, I uh, the other night watched the film The Queen because I've decided that uh, I'm going to watch the uh, Tony Blair trilogy by uh, Peter Morgan and the rest of them uh, in reverse order. Okay. Not really deliberately, but now I've watched The Special Relationship and then I've watched The Queen and I haven't watched The Deal. So that's the so point. it'll, the real it'll prob- seem like he's becoming like more truthful. Possibly, although I think the deal is all about how he lied to and betrayed uh, Gordon Brown. Oh, fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, that is the kind of the problem with those movies is that Michael Sheen playing Tony Blair is a lot more likable than Tony <laughs> Blair himself. Yes, this is. I feel like this is potentially a problem with Michael Sheen playing anyone really. Yeah, He's an almost impossibly likable man. Yeah, which is weird because in a way it's almost trying to take away from his. Uh, acting and it's not mm. he does really good acting but it's just i mean maybe that's the thing about tony blair he was a, you know for such a long time this really likable dynamic guy who was so much better than the previous leaders that people really loved him yeah. we all got horror betrayed or something i don't know um but yes it's a good film uh and it's weird some of the bits where it's like the impersonations are more visual and sometimes they're more like voices so like the guy who's doing prince charles looks nothing like mm. him but has the voice like right on there huh. um but yeah very interesting film and very weird that whole i guess the psychology of it the you know public mourning for diana when really how many people really knew her and that they, they mourned her like you know a lost family member yeah. um which is supposedly this watershed moment in british history of the recent years i don't quite understand why i don't remember it affecting me that much do you remember i remember like being in school when it happened but not through any particular emotional reaction i don't think i really knew who she was really like i was aware of her existence but yeah maybe we're just sort of probably just the wrong age of just slightly the wrong age for it to really make any sense yeah i think you're right um and they cancelled a lot of children's TV for the news coverage and funeral, which made a lot of people our age a bit kind of angry. <laughs> uh, that's just uh, the the bitter cruelty of childhood. Um, it is, isn't it? For really? which we shall have revenge later in this episode. Hey, um, <laughs> I fish. <laughs> so, yeah, to be honest, I've really not done anything else apart from uh, uh, work and... Um, I watched two rugby matches, uh, a Worcester win and an England loss. And I figure that, I don't know, I feel like sports fans have this sense of balance and justice that really is never justified by fact. <laughs> well, but I always think, oh, well, at least if, if, if both my teams are playing, as it were, my teams, <laughs> if both the teams I support are playing, I would like one of them to win. That's fair enough. I, I, I don't demand that both of them win in order to be satisfied. But then it's like, why should I? Why should I feel that's the right answer? You and know? you've got sort of like why different. Should... You've got like superordinate and subordinate categories there. You know, you've got your your local versus your global uh, support yeah. level thing. He said, desperately trying to drag the podcast back to psychology. <laughs> well, I think sport does involve a lot of psychology. I just mm. never really studied it, so I can't really talk about it. But I do find it interesting, the sport fan mentality. Yeah, I mean, we should... Where we have all these expectations. We should totally do an episode on sport. But unfortunately, that's going to require you being the driving force because my level of apathy towards sport is such that, weirdly, you're the one, you're the sporty one out of the two. And Yeah, I like that. That makes me feel very badly. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, if, if that's going to happen, then... you 
if anyone out there wants that to happen, you're definitely going to have to badger Tim. Yeah. Um, your apathy towards sport, I think you're entering the Olympics <laughs> in that competition, aren't you? <laughs> Along with about half of Britain, I imagine, during 2012. Basically, it's a bit, it's basically, it uses the same, the uh, the marathon course, except which like winds its way all the way through the Olympic Village. And uh, the competitors have to get from one side of the Olympic Village to the other without engaging in any way in any of the sport on show. Ah. <laughs> uh. D- does it count if you try to get tickets and failed? <laughs> is that is that a good move? No, in the you're given tickets and you have to give them back. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, and presumably not sell them for a profit. <laughs> because anyway, yes. Have you have you done anything? Well, because uh, the the secret we're hiding. Yeah. Really. The point is that uh, once again we are bending space and time, and it's actually only been about three days since we recorded the last podcast, which doesn't give. A huge amount of time for anything interesting t- to happen uh, it's also been the weekend which traditionally at least for me is a time of doing absolutely sweet fa uh, which i have indeed done this weekend so again not very much happened so i didn't think that i was going to have anything to talk about in this section so i decided to spend a ridiculously uh, overcompensatory amount of time coming up with a belabored segue from the what have we done this week into the topic for this week's show since doing that, I have actually booked flights to Korea and arranged viewings of houses this week, but which are actually quite interesting, like the fact that I'm going to Korea. Um, but uh, your global I am, I am. I believe we called it on a previous episode. Actually, that that phrase is particularly apt given the conversation I had with uh, the uh, variously the guy I will be flying to Korea with and the guy to whom I am flying in Korea, who's having his wedding there. Um, uh, the guy who's been who's having his wedding has been living there for a while, and he was telling us that apparently in Korea they don't have bacon, um, oh. which is... That was reason enough to call off the trip at the time. But we just, Did they have it in North Korea? Because Kim Jong-un, you know? Well, I, I imagine they'd probably have, like, panda bacon or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, we we worked out what we'd have to do is smuggle a pig into Korea with us. Uh, but given those, it would probably, it wouldn't do very well in the, in the, like the actual luggage section, we'd probably have to have it as carry on luggage. Um, so we, we planned to get a pig, paint it black and write Gucci on the side of it and pretend that it's a very elaborate handbag. You could have invented the next big thing. Here. <laughs> the Gucci pig. Alternatively, exactly. you could just pack some bacon. <laughs> That's not thinking creatively enough, Tim. Well, that might not be true, I suppose. <laughs> yes. So Gucci pig's going to Korea. I'll let you know how that goes. Um, Incidentally, Gucci little piggies uh, is a line from a Radiohead song. Really? So uh, if you get like uh, stopped, you can just say it's art. <laughs> it's an homage to the amazing Tom York in the form of a porcine animal. Do you say porcine or porcine? I don't know. I say porcine because then the meat is pork, but I have no idea whether which is. I which. always thought it was porcine, but anyway. Um, anyway, so um, what I actually spend most of my time doing since the last podcast is arranging the following belaboured segue. Which, in the spirit of last week's show on uh, role-playing adventure games, is a choose-your-own-adventure belaboured segue that you, Tim, Ooh. can play. Okay. Have you got this all, like, mapped out or something? Well, so basically, it, it's not a very in-depth uh, choose-your-own-adventure. You basically get one choice. Um, there is a prototype of a more in-depth version, but this was running <laughs> to such an enormous size when i decided to stop that i i thought i'd better in the interest of actually maintaining the, the length of the podcast should probably just keep it as a single choice so anyway are you ready have you have you got your choose your own adventure hat on i'm just trying to see where my actual choose your own adventure book that i bought as an ex-library thing is i can't see it to hand but probably uh, won't help it's I not like, like a I... textbook <laughs> a choose your own adventure textbook would be amazing avoid any option that seems like it's going to lead to safety <laughs> they are all red herrings um okay i think i'm ready okay i think i'm ready as ready as i'll ever be so here it here it goes you come home from work and are surprised to discover a dead body lying on your futon which television genius do you call on for assistance the options are as follows 
Option one, Sherlock Holmes. Option two, House MD. Or option three, Dexter Morgan. <laughs> I imagine my reasons for picking Dexter <laughs> would not really be pragmatic. So, you, I mean, are you going to pick Dexter? I think I am because, I mean, prov- providing I can prove my innocence in the killing, <laughs> as it were, um, pr- I mean, or the death, anyway, I shouldn't assume it's a murder. That makes me look immensely suspicious. <laughs> um, but. You know, I think House, you risk disinterest. And Sherlock is technically on the side of good and order. So, yeah, Dexter Morgan. De- you have chosen Dexter Morgan. This was a bad choice. Because as, <laughs> because as it turns out, the murderer was in fact you, Timothy Swan. Oh. You were surprised to find the body on your futon because in your murderous rage, you forgot you owned a futon. <laughs> Dexter uses oh, his no. forensic training and killer instinct to determine that you bludgeoned your victim to death with a copy of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix while shouting, we'll see who gets to be the nerdy and unlikable yet fundamentally <laughs> indispensable one who everyone comes to value over a number of years, adding, you're not even a particularly good actor. <laughs> Having identified you as a de- deranged sociopath, Dexter extracts bloody revenge on you, though he is subsequently plagued by doubts brought on by the fact that he secretly agrees that Emma Watson isn't that good an actor. <laughs> Another Watson, John, is famously sidekicked the Victorian slash modern day slash inevitably steampunk detective Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is the answer you should have given, which would have led me to this week's topic, disgust. Okay, I'm just noting you said slash a good number of times there <laughs> for, for talking about Watson and Sherlock. That <laughs> um, was unintentional. Uh, yes. Um, so what? What? How would have Sherlock have brought me? to that let's let's say that i cheated and kept my finger in the page like i used to everyone does okay you've kept your finger in the page you have chosen sherlock holmes or should i say sherlock homeland because this week (laughs) i watched the first episode of the new tv show homeland it was really good and it has damian lewis and claire danes in it two of my favorite actors another one of my favorite actors is sean bean bean is also the common name for several plants of the leguminosae family In the Harry Potter books, see, like crossing tangential things, in the Harry Potter books, leguminose is a magical spell which turns people into kidney beans. Kidney beans contain the toxin phytohemagglutinin, which if not removed through correct preparation, can induce nausea and vomiting. Nausea and vomiting are classic symptoms of this week's topic, disgust. Okay, yeah, yeah, pretty impressive. Not bad, huh? The Um, thing about leguminose is sadly a lie. Yeah, although... If we kidnap J.K. Rowling, <laughs> then we can ask her, why, why, why was the Order of the Phoenix that long and boring? <laughs> also to write a little short story with a leguminosa thing. That would but, totally work. Know, let the get our priorities straight. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Discussed. It's, yeah, disgust. That's what we're talking about this week. Well, yeah, the disgusting episode. I mean, uh, I am not necessarily talking about the emotion of disgust, but I will talk about the um, things that are disgusting. Hooray! Uh, so, yes, the study I'm going to talk about first is Rubin et al. 2011, and it involves sweat. So, yeah, I mean, this is worth pointing out. We are not necessarily actually just talking about disgust as a uh, psychological construct this week. We were just looking for disgusting studies. Yeah. And And Ben already had a good few saved up, it seems. Yeah. And in one case, really quite upsetting studies. Like, this is the first time I've been genuinely perturbed by a study that I've I've read. And we've read some pretty horrific ones. Yeah. Um, Anyway, something to to look forward to. Steal yourself. (laughs) Try not to do this on a full stomach. Don't actually steal yourself. That's pretty difficult. Yeah. Anyway, what I can safely tell you about this study on sweat is that my prep for this was not undertaken with blood, 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 blood. Sorry, Glorious. I've got that blood, blood obsession. There's nothing you quite put it in... like it. What? <laughs> <laughs> We're doing Flanders and Swan meets Dexter, are we? <laughs> yes. There, there was a kid's book that I read when I was little about a vampire. And I can't remember. He was like a friendly vampire. And he did sing. Uh, a, a, a cover of mud mud glorious mud with blood blood glorious blood okay it's pretty that dark is. come to think of it yeah. <laughs> i did watch two episodes of being human this week it's the sort of thing that wouldn't quite be out of place there 
Ah, uh, yes. I prefer the spin-off show um, about uh, with the the ex cast of of um, uh, Bill and Ben the Flowerpot Men um, with the with the herbs uh, being uh, called being human. That that silence, although not a long enough silence, because otherwise it would sound like dead air, is what that joke deserves. <laughs> anyway. Thing. <laughs> Yeah, um, it was not undertaken with blood, sweat, toil and tears uh, on account of the limited amount of time I had to prepare. But yeah, what this study was, was to see whether stress uh, in its uh, chemical representation, which usually ends up, you know, exuded in sweat, can be transmitted. Now, we kind of intuitively know that stressed people can often stress us out, but not so much about the process by which that happens, or at least I don't. And I haven't actually checked whether we do understand it as psychologists in general. (laughs) What? what that we, would seem to constitute like reasonable research so i don't think we can be expected to do that <laughs> yeah willful ignorance is what it is <laughs> anyway what we do know um from reading this the study um at least the introduction is that non-human mammals definitely use chemicals to send out this stress message and previous work has managed to show a great deal about the impact of human sweat on other humans processing proving not only that science can be disgusting but that it can be repeatedly disgusting uh, only within a narrow research field. Um, and obviously these narrow research fields often feature the same names popping up again and again. So I guess if you had one of these guys in your university, you, he would just be like, oh, it's uh, so-and-so, the stress guy. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, this is the danger of, of studying only one thing, particularly if that only one thing is distressing. There is a guy in my uh, who I've met who's a, a friend of a friend um, who's... Uh, entire lab career is based in microwaving sperm samples um, in in a fertility lab in Oxford, and apparently the smell is the worst thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the theme of the show, yes, I suppose it is. What what does that achieve? I don't know why they need to microwave it. I don't know. But, but is it going anyway. to end up te- being like the conclusion of the research is your mobile phones have made you all infertile? Could be. Could be. I don't know. So, um, um, yeah. Anyway, now stress, stress sweat, which is what they call it, is often tested against exercise sweat. And I really feel a great sense of pity to the grad student or lab tech <laughs> tasked with collecting it. Um, I mean, I know you have to collect sweat sometimes for medical reasons and diagnostically. Usually it's just a quick swab. Clearly, if you're going to actually use it for the process of inhaling, then (laughs) you're really going to need more than that. I'm not quite sure how they do it. They don't specify in this paper. In this paper, they just say, oh, well, we've previously described how we do it. I'll come back to that later. But yes, inhaling sweat that contains the chemicals due to stress leads to increased amygdala activation it increases the startle reflex it enhances perception and recognition of fearful and angry faces so what it's really doing is it's turning up the tension level the expectation of threat all the good standard threat measures it was very much doing that chemically by affecting the brain rather than by the smell being a kind of associated smell because people can't smell the difference between stress sweat and exercise sweat huh which is interesting that is interesting. So yes, in this particular study by Rubin, um, they believed that what it might show was some kind of impact on attention in general, um, on how salient we find particular faces or features of particular faces. And they tested this using uh, ERP, uh, event-related potentials, Correct. Um, which is like EEG to the max, because uh, it's, this is the 90s, right? Um well, kind of. It's it's. <laughs> you're sort of slightly wrong, ish. It's uh, so uh, event-related potentials is is kind of like the name for the thing that you do using EEG. Yeah, I know. <laughs> really, EEG to the max would be MEG. But I just wanted an excuse to go to the nineties and you know inventing <laughs> podcasts in advance, also to do something about their fashion. Uh, of course, because this started me thinking: how bad would podcasts be pre-broadband? Ooh. Did you ever try and download files about the size of podcasts back then? Do you, do you remember when, uh, was it Kazaa? Like oh, the, yeah, the music thing? That was pre-broadband, I'm pretty sure. Or yeah, at least it early could be. Yeah, sharing. Um, I was oh, kind yeah. of that when 
there was this miraculous program uh, from the real corporation called Real Downloader, which was like this lifesaver because they used to try and make you do dial-up downloads without any way of resuming them. (laughs) And that was a nightmare. And I would literally, I would have to, if I wanted to download like a piece of music or something, um, say to my dad, dad, can we leave on the internet all night Mm. so I can download like a five megabyte file? (laughs) It's a dark time, a very yeah. dark time. Yes, and uh, I'd like to note that in where I live, the broadband is an improvement, but not by much. <laughs> but anyway, yes, let's get back to the disgusting bit. 64 male donors gave of their sweat in either an emotional or an exercise condition. Now, the emotional condition was a first-time skydive, and the second was wow. 20 minutes on a treadmill. That if- is a good study, although... If you thought collecting sweat from someone on a treadmill was difficult, try collecting it from them in a skydive. Yeah, I, I guess they put like some like sponges under their arms and then just wring them out. It doesn't say how they do Come, it. Can you get closer? Can you get a bit closer? Just a, just a little... Oh, damn, I dropped the sponge. <laughs> we'll have to go again. Oh, but then it isn't a first-time skydive. It's like, new participants, maybe that's why they need 64. Um, and if they are randomly assigned, you're really hoping when you're sitting there that you're going to be getting one or the other. Indeed, the stress of just waiting to hear might be enough to get some good sweat. They should have done uh, They should have done a, a third condition when you are on a treadmill doing a skydive. <laughs> it's like, I guess it would be like a microlight type thing. Uh, anyway, <laughs> carry on. Uh, what they did after that was confirmed that the chemical markers of stress were definitely in skydive sweat that they hadn't just thrown them out of plane for nothing that there was cortisol and that in the uh, in the sweat because that would be an unfortunate thing to pilot and not uh, pilot uh, <laughs> pilot and not get right it's like right we threw a person out of a plane for the first time they were terrified and yet their brain decided not to put the right chemicals in their sweat that we needed it wasn't and it wasn't just throw a person out of a plane. It's throwing 30 people out of a plane. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, this is why you have to test things first. You have to make sure before you do your <clears throat> participant group. But oh, yeah. man. I wish they'd, they'd tried to, to um, like, get funding to do MRI scans while people were jumping. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Throw a million pound MRI scanner with a couple of parachutes on. <laughs> yeah, you might need more than a couple of parachutes. <laughs> I mean, you'd need some military technology there, really, to know how yeah. to drop it properly. I suppose if you if you put the MRI scanner in the bottom of like a like a Hercules or something, yeah, so that the person was suspended under the plane with their head in the scanner. Yeah, anyway, that wouldn't cause problems with the whole metal thing. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway. Uh, oh, yeah. well. so they, I guess that's the only problem with that that plan. Yes, the only problem. <laughs> they then presented this uh, sweat that they collected to a surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, low number of participants. <laughs> 14. <laughs> which says something about the difference between fear and disgust, really, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> man, imagine, imagine if that if like it was random assignment to those three conditions. <laughs> Either you get to go on a treadmill, jump out of a plane, or eat some sweat. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, what they did do was they used techniques that they don't say how they got it, but they do say prevented bacterial growth, avoided odour, but preserved all of the chemical components of the sweat. And they had the participants rate them for smell first, and they were rated as neutral, which suggests this technique worked pretty well. And they would, you know, say that the smell associated with sweat is because of bacteria in it. You think it'd be pretty hard to avoid it without messing it up. Yeah. Slash just like pouring on some antiperspirant. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really understand how you would do that. But And then, <laughs> I'm going to read a quotation from the study. Sweat samples were extracted, diluted with water, and presented to participants via a proprietary nebulizing olfactometer optimised for semi-volatiles. And what that means is they invented a special nebulizer just so people could breathe in sweat. That's which is cool. amazing, but also disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's going to be a fun one to bring to the patent committee. <laughs> yes. Now, guys, just let me finish here. Now, they then it showed... It will make sense. Yeah, they then showed them some angry, neutral, and then ambiguous morphed faces, uh, for <laughs> which I'm sure we can find some examples in the show notes that will oh, make God, you cry. Oh, again. <laughs> um, and recorded uh, the EEG to look for a late positive potential, as well as other patterns that were associated with attention. And what they found was that the late positive potential, which is a more emotional uh, 
kind of signal was high in every condition when they'd inhaled sweat. sweat. Um, and yet take it, another run at that. <laughs> no, <laughs> stress sweat. Um, and uh, it was only for high for clearly angry faces in the exercise sweat condition. So uh, the other parts of the kind of ERP profile were that were associated with attention weren't really affected. So mm. these chemicals in sweat were really only affecting emotional processing. And at what the, they, kind of at the late stage. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, very much the late stage. And what they believe, perhaps sensibly, uh, is that chemical triggers will increase our arousal and alert level to potentially threatening stimuli rather than just obviously threatening we always need to react to obviously threatening stimuli. But if we've mm. got some signal that's put us on alert, then even potentially threatening stimuli, we're taking notice of in that sort of way. Yeah. Which really only raises one simple final question that I'll close on. How do these chemicals get transmitted normally in high enough levels to have an impact on the brain? I mean, there were pretty low levels in the study, weren't they? I mean, they'd been like heavily diluted. Did they say the quantities of sweat that was involved? Uh-huh. I mean, they didn't just pour What's... a bucket of it on I someone. Can check. Um, but I, <laughs> that I would have imagined since that they'd been already diluted with water, that the levels are pretty low. And if they weren't able to smell it, then yeah. Mm, interesting. Uh, while you're looking for that, I will just mention that, um, so that this, this stress sweat one has been kicking around in my, to be discussed, <laughs> discussed st- uh, box for a while. Um, and uh, the idea of doing some stuff on like pheromones of which there is a fair amount of research um struck me as an idea of kind of expanding on this this topic of disgust or disgusting studies yeah. so i was um hunting for uh disgust uh, or pheromone studies on um pubmed and came across one which is not psychology and not very funny but its title is worth the price of admission alone it's by olson and hansen uh, oh wow, Olsen SB and Hansen BS. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, and it's called a flux capacitor for moth pheromones. <laughs> That's amazing. What it on is. earth does it mean? Um, do you want to hear the abstract? I don't know. You said it was boring. It's yeah. It's about chemo communication, which is pheromones basically. Um, Molecular. I think the, the fundamental issue with this is that you need to understand what flux means. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure that I do. It doesn't involve time travel. No, unfortunately. Okay, I'll give it a miss then. But yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, mean, we I can link it in the show notes if you like. I've got the the abstract here. Okay. Well, I can't. I can't. Um, I can't find any level of milliliters of sweat used. They don't include their recipe for. Uh, Delia's perfect sweat, nasally administered sweat compound. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyway, so yes, that's all I have to say about sweat. Hooray! Uh, yes, this is the the episode where uh, the end of each study will be greeted with joy. Um, yes. Although also trepidation about what you're going to talk about, Ben. Oh yeah. So um, I uh, was interested partly in the study of disgust itself as as a kind of discrete emotion, of which there is a lot of study, um, but also kind of a more general point about the kind of stimuli that get used in experiments where you're trying to induce things like disgust. Uh, it actually branches out a bit because um obviously a, a key problem with emotion research is that you have to get people to experience the emotion genuinely in an experimental context uh which can be difficult using you know you can't always just show people a picture or get them to try and imagine a situation and elicit a really strong emotional reaction i mentioned the study last week i think where uh uh the guy uh insulted participants or kind of berated participants in an MRI scanner to induce anger. Oh, yes. Um, which is an example of one of the more extreme stimuli, I guess you'd call it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I found that I had uh, myself three studies which kind of all speak to this theme of <laughs> extreme and in most cases disgusting uh, stimuli that have been used to induce emotions. Super. <laughs> so uh, the first study is a classic of 
ethically dubious psychology, um, which is always fun to start with and then a little bit harrowing. Uh, it's by uh, Landis and it was conducted in 1924 and it's uh, uh, two studies uh, called Studies of Emotional Reactions 1 and 2. Uh, and then they have like a boring postscript. And basically the whole principle of this was to determine whether um, there are emotion-specific facial expressions. So whether there is like a one-to-one correlation between particular muscle facial muscle movements and the emotion that the person is experiencing. And so the way they, they, they chose to do this, this is, you know, very early on. So they were doing it very crudely, basically, by just trying to get people to experience an emotion and then photographing them while they were doing it. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of issues with the experiment, like the fact that the photographs weren't taken at any standard time. They were just whenever the experimenter felt like it and thought that the expression was best. Um, yeah, science was different. So yes. Uh, some might say better, and they would be wrong. Um, but the interesting thing about this study is the uh, stimuli that Landis used to elicit these emotions. Uh, and in experiment one, I quote from the article, the following series of situations were used as stimuli. I also apologize for the fact that I'm uh, flip-flopping between uh, s- pronouncing it stimuli and stimuli. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be, but I'm going to continue to do so. Uh, The following series of situations were used as stimuli. One, classical music, phonographic reproduction of Die Walküre by... uh, Die Walküre? Yeah, Die Walküre, however you pronounce that in German, by Wagner. Two, jazz music, phonographic reproduction of My Man, played by a jazz orchestra. Three, paintings of nudes, The Birth of Venus by uh, Bougereau. And Sleeping Venus by Giorgione were used. I'm presumably also pronouncing those wrong. Four, Paintings of Christ, The Crucifixion and the Trinity by Rubens. Five, this is where it starts to get interesting, Vulgar Pictures of Direct Sex Appeal, a strip of pictures depicting various sexual acts was used. Six, Pictures to Arouse Horror or Disgust, the illustrations in The Diseases of China by Jeffries and Maxwell were used. These are quite detailed and, for most subjects, very effective. 7. Odours. The subjects were given a tray containing eight small bottles. The bottles contained dilute forms of cinnamon oil, spirits of peppermint, etc. The bottles were placed in a row facing the subject, and he was told to uncork the bottle nearest him, smell it, recork, and replace in the tray. Take the next bottle and do so down the line. The next to last bottle was labelled syrup of of lemon, but actually contained very strong ammonia. (laughs) 8. Frogs. A bucket with a paper cover was placed beside the subject. Through the top of uh, the table at which the subject was seating, a polished iron rod extended. The subject was told to grasp the rod with his left hand. Using his right hand, he was to remove the cover from the bucket without looking and to feel around in the bucket. The bucket contained two live frogs in about an inch of water. Uh, And finally, the old standby electric shocks. And I won't read the full one because it's a bit longer, but basically it's exactly the same as eight, except uh, there aren't frogs in the water. There's electric wiring. (laughs) I don't know why I find that funnier than frogs. (laughs) It's all kind of terrible. It's pretty terrible. Um, So this was experiment one. Experiment two, I'm not sure if he included any of those as well, but the main thing that he did in experiment two was presented participants with a live rat and told them to cut its head off. Yeah. So, uh, as it turns out, fully one-third of the participants did cut the rat's head off, although they weren't in any way expert at the procedure, so many of them didn't do it very well, the rat suffered quite a lot, and for those that didn't cut its head off, Landis cut its head off. Wow, that is kind of like the Milgram thing taken to the next level. Yeah, it it was 66 percent of people obeyed the electric shock for the remaining third. We just electrocuted a guy (laughs) ourselves for science. Uh, Yeah. So and at the end of all this, they were completely unable to find any emotion specific expressions. So, yeah, a lot of rats, frogs and participants gave variously of their lives, their dignity and their psychological well-being to find bugger all. And, um, the, I mean, the intro, like the, the 
this is a study which talked about quite a lot in kind of lists of disturbing psychology studies in the same breath as Milgram and Zimbardo and people. And I mean, it actually is more interesting as a study of obedience and, uh, you know, doing what authority figures tell you in the, uh, in the style of um, Milgram rather than anything about emotional expressions. Um, and is pretty disgusting yeah. and horrific. Yeah. I mean, it's often cited by the people who talk about kind of emotionist communication. Yeah. I mean, it's more it, than as emotion in its own right, because they'll say, well, in the situation, what is expected of these people? Yeah. If you scientist, you go to see a scientist and he says, right, cut off a rat's head and oh, I'm going to photo what your face looks like while you do yeah. it. You have no idea what face you should be putting and that's going to cause you a lot of confusion. Maybe you try and keep a neutral face because you don't want to look. Yeah you know weak or something there's all sorts of factors going on there yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty dodgy study but disgusting i think everyone will agree um yes. which is the only criterion for entry this week um so that's that's kind of in the bad old days how you could try and elicit emotional reactions this is kind of leads into the second study which um is sort of a modern variant. Basically, you can't use crap like that in studies these days. Thankfully, you can still use actual crap. And I apologize for the <laughs> fact that this is meant to be a clean podcast. But this is a study... I'm not sure how iTunes like, decides. There's two studies this week about poo. So, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> this is actually my least upsetting study, uh, in which the authors successfully induce animal phobias into children by giving them jars of poo. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so it's it's actually quite an interesting study. Basically, the the, the authors uh, Maurice Maurice et al. I'm going to stick with. <laughs> you might get the uh, citation in the show notes, but the second name is difficult to pronounce, and I'm not doing very well with that today already. Anyway, so um, Maurice et al. Uh, they're interested in whether um, disgust is key in the development of animal phobias in children. Uh, the idea being that if you feel disgust towards an animal on initial exposure, that could lead to subsequent fear in this development of a phobia. seems fairly reasonable. You can certainly imagine how, you know, it would work with, you know, spiders and snakes and things. If you're disgusted by them when you first see them, then subsequently a lot of people have fears or like borderline phobias yeah. of them. So basically they got uh, a bunch of nine to 13 year olds uh, and presented them with pictures of a couscous which I thought was a made-up animal, but actually is an Australian uh, uh, kind of like um, Pacific Island. That's wrong. Australian, Australasian mammal. Uh, no. Wow. I got that so wrong. It's not Pacific Island. It's an Australasian marsupial um, and okay. is just kind of like snouty and furry and, and sort of marsupialish. Uh, and if you feed it into a blender, it becomes a Moroccan side dish. Probably, yes. And <laughs> There's a, obviously a joke about that later. But anyway, uh, yes. Uh, oh, it's sorry. Fine. It wasn't a very good one. It was kind of like, <laughs> if you've got an animal called a couscous, you kind of like mandated to make a joke about it. But anyway. Um, yeah, so they presented them with pictures of a couscous, which none of the children had seen before. Despite the fact that they were, some of the children were from New Zealand. The rest were from the Netherlands. So that's a bit more excusable. Um, they were then the children were then given what were ostensibly samples relating to the animal and its behavior and these were either um, like uh, disgusting specimens or neutral specimens and they were like different there were different categories of so food the disgusting food was like brown gunge uh, that which is how it's described in the paper and the neutral specimen was some fruit uh, I was going to say, is Dave Benson Phillips one of the co-authors? <laughs> the the sleeping place category was, uh, in the disgusting condition, a nest of mud and slush. Uh, in the neutral specimen, nest of leaves, petals and flowers. Um, the drink, the disgusting drink, was turbid water with dead flies. Uh, and oh. in the neutral condition was clean water. Um, then there was some, like fur which was either dirty or in, and entangled or clean and well combed um and then territory in the disgust condition was excrement and in the neutral specimen was shells and stones right uh and then there were 
There was smell, which was tissue sprinkled with stinking and sourish fluid, or tissue sprinkled with flower-like perfume. And finally, living space, which was, in the disgusting condition, spiders and insects. Presumably uh, non-disgusting insects, as opposed to the neutral condition, where it was ladybirds, which last time I checked were insects. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah, but everyone loves ladybirds. Everyone does love ladybirds. Um, Objective fact. Uh, and actually, like, the experiment works perfectly well. Like, the disgust manipulation, so those uh, kids who'd been given disgusting samples showed more fear or, on subsequent they, – they did, like, before and after uh, tests of fear, disgust, and interpretation bias. And the kids showed more fear towards um, the animal um, and a tendency to interpret kind of neutral situations about it in a negative way. And there were – the questions were quite good. They were like – do you feel that your hand will be bitten when you touch a couscous? Would you run away because you think the couscous is dangerous? Would you feel scared of the couscous because you think he will do scary things? <laughs> um, <laughs> would you, yeah, would you hold your nose if you were to clo- if you were close to a couscous? Uh, it's kind oh, of they're all good questions. They're there, good yeah. questions. Um, so yeah, congratulations to Mirasetel. They have engineered an entire class of children who hate couscous. And now none of them will grow up to be vegans. <laughs> do do uh, any of the kind of does any of the article look at the process by what it, which this might happen? Because the implication is almost that a disgusting animal is a more dangerous animal. Yeah, I mean, and I'm trying to think if there's evidence of that in real life. Like foxes are known to be disgusting. I don't know how dangerous they are to humans, but you know there are some predators who we think of as kind of disgusting. I suppose, like generally, disgust is. Um, did a presentation on it the other week it's about purity violations it kind of signals yeah. uh potential threats to your physical or indeed your moral purity and so threats to physical yeah. purity evolutionarily would have been disease and i suppose in that regard disgusting creatures are potentially more likely to be diseased than non-disgusting ones like yeah, so I suppose like you're a, right. Like a a pet dog is probably going to be cleaner than I don't know, um, some like wild pig or something. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Pigs very common one. Um, often avoided. Yeah. Um, and very much considered disgusting. Mm. Um, so there we go. Um, I felt a little bad about the participants because some of them are for like the ones in the Netherlands are fine because they're probably never going to run across couscous again. But the ones in New Zealand, it is conceivable that they could meet one one day and they're these oh, the kids be scarred for oh, life. Do they not kind of decondition? Them? I don't know. Uh, I imagine they debriefed them, but whether they deconditioned them, I'm not sure. I don't think maybe so. they debriefed them, but they didn't ask pertinent enough questions because they weren't trusted because one of them was bipolar. No. It's a callback to Homeland. You said you watched it. Oh, I did. Uh, but <laughs> okay, it was an elaborate callback. Yeah, right. Fair enough. Moving on. That's revenge for the belated <laughs> segue. Elaborate callback is my revenge. Entirely reasonable. Um, so this this brings me on to the final study I want to talk about, which is like if that was what you can get away with with kids, this is what you can get away with adults this these days. Which is not as bad as making them cut the head off a live rat. But actually reading the study that I'm about to talk about disturbed me more than reading about Landis's uh, studies by quite a long margin. Okay. Um, so the, the study is called Infection, Incest and Iniquity, Investigating the Neural Correlates of Disgust and Morality by Borg, Lieberman and Kiel. If there's incest in the title, yeah. that doesn't open that- Believe it or not, the incest part is not the worst bit. Um, so they were interested in different kinds of disgust. And don't worry, I'm not actually going to read out the, the really like upsetting parts of the study because they're really, really horrible. Um, and I felt quite upset reading them myself. So if you're, if you're that interested, you can go and look up the study um, and look at the section entitled Experimental Task, which contains examples of the stimuli they used. Um, basically they, they were trying to look at the, there's these subtle differentiations between different kinds of, uh, acts that provoke disgust. And their idea was that you have, uh, pathogen related and sociomoral acts. 
Um, so pathogens are, are more sort of the evolutionary based ones, the things that would result in disease and kind of like are evolutionarily bad for you in that regard. And then the socio-moral ones is this more kind of social functionist view of social functionalist view of uh, disgust as an emotion that promotes um, pro-social behavior. And the categories of stimuli that they gave, basically they had the participants were in an MRI scanner. They were interested at whether these different kinds of disgust uh, resulted in similar patterns of brain activity compared to, you know, self-reported disgust. Uh, and they, the participants were in the scanner, they just had to memorize blocks of short statements and the short statements were either in the pathogen condition, the incest condition, the non-sexual moral condition, or the neutral condition. And so, I mean, a lot of them are, you can kind of imagine the kind of statements. Uh, the, the thing that was particularly upsetting about the statements is the participants had to report them as if it was themselves. So it's like, uh, so some of the less upsetting ones, non-sexual moral, you killed your sister's child. Right. Uh, and then the neutral ones, like you are holding your sister's groceries. They all were about siblings, basically. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And then the incest and the pathogen ones were truly, truly upsetting. And I don't know. I mean, they found they found what they set out to find. They found that like uh, there were some brain areas that are commonly active during both these pathogen and sociomoral um, stimuli, um, but they also have kind of new, unique brain regions, despite the fact that they tend to provoke similar ratings of moral disapproval, uh, like self-report ratings. So it's an interesting finding. But if those guys didn't, A, reimburse their participants a huge amount of money, which they didn't, it was $20 an hour, and if the, oh my, the amount of debriefing that they w- should give was ah really upset me this study not just utterly disgusting but very effective like if if i'm feeling real rank disgust just reading the statements once in the abs in the yeah. article then you can be damn sure that my brain areas are active for disgust um so yeah and you don't even have a sister <laughs> this is true this is absolutely true um, I don't know if it's relevant. Does it say whether the participants were known to have female siblings, if it was all sister-based? Um, I don't think they did. I, I don't think they mention it. And although um, I, I can't remember if it was a study or a discussion I had with someone. I think it was just a discussion I had with someone on the subject. <laughs> so hard to get confused between those oh, two these days. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks. On the, on the discussion of incest, uh, on the topic of incest, brilliant, um, about whether it people have a stronger uh, aversive reaction to it as a taboo if they have siblings or not. Um, I can't remember the conclusions. It's not a particularly nice topic of discussion and it's not particularly funny either. So, um, you clearly have never seen arrested development. <laughs> That's all incest all the time. And it's very funny. Really? I haven't seen arrested development and I probably should. Well, yeah, there's a lot of incest based humor. Ah, in there. Fair enough. Um, and I suppose the good old Norfolk jokes. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there we go. So those are cool. three studies at varying degrees of distressingness uh, on the topic of how you induce disgust via stimuli. There we go. Excellent. Well, I have a only a short study to finish with but don't worry it's a good one (laughs) it is a good one i i'm looking forward to this one okay so one sentence summary of this study the more poop a monkey throws the more intelligence it is hooray (laughs) yeah end of podcast finally justified all of my behavior in high school congratulations authors you have won at science (laughs) hopkins et al 2011 you have much to be proud of Okay, I need I need everyone listening to imagine that this study is being read out in the voice of Anthony Hopkins. Oh, I wish I was good at voices. Mm. Anyway, me too man, me yes. too. I wanted to do House Dexter and uh, Sherlock Holmes voices, but you know, House is finishing. 
it's its final season is it really yeah man this will give me an a, like a tangible excuse to actually catch up and watch it if i know that it's going to end yeah <laughs> rather than giving up as something that's going to be forever i don't yeah. know why they're giving up it's still the most popular tv show in the world mm. it has uh, some crap like artistic integrity maybe yeah that sounds unlikely to me <laughs> it does rather so yes not monkeys it does actually, but, uh, does raise the exciting prospect of what hugh laurie is going to do next yeah all blues all the time <laughs> i'm me yeah well anyway this thing about monkeys and poop it wasn't monkeys, <laughs> it was chimps uh which is the sort Look of distinction that i'm sure that gregory house would insist on me making but i think is boring i love how we seamlessly segue between media and psycho yeah yeah it's good <laughs> so- right Seen any comedy this week anyway poo <laughs> oh yes toilet humor hooray the perfect the perfect you know lowest common denominator that will make everyone laugh um <laughs> basically the impact of this study on me actually having read at least some reports on it and summaries of it and the abstract is that even when there's an alternative kind of explanation offered everyone always focuses in on the feces so What scientists at the National Primate Research Centre did was look at all of the objects thrown by the chimps there over a course of time, and then, as one does... Including insults. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should mention that. Oh no, that's amazing. I'll explain why later. Okay. Um, Okay, what they did after they, you know, noted down, I mean, the data that you've got to get there it's crazy um of all these objects thrown by the chimps was then give them brain scans and compare the data so the data collected on the throwing was the frequency the distance and the accuracy now frequency easy to measure distance easy to measure accuracy (laughs) how do you know where a chimp is throwing something (laughs) you have to coat everything in their cage with paint (laughs) except for the monkeys that no that wouldn't that's hard yeah that's difficult maybe you have to oh i don't know you get them no exactly (laughs) i mean maybe you could look for obvious signs of pleasure when one really connects (laughs) that's the only thing i can think of i don't think i don't think we know enough about about like chimp behavior to really judge like me and you don't know enough about chimp behavior i'm sure the people who like look after the chimps do Um, well I, i certainly hope so but yeah Anyway, what increased... <laughs> it's, it's probably when the, the, uh, the, the throw is followed by the chimp yelling, boom, headshot. <laughs> Just kind of doing a kind of victory strut. Yeah, maybe... No, I won't go there. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what increased throwing was associated with was not only increased motor cortex activity, as one might expect, hmm. but also activity in the areas analogous to human speech areas the equivalent of the broker's area Hmm. which really suggests that rise of the planet of the apes needs a lot more poop to be thrown by caesar the first talking chimp (laughs) now i've not seen caesar yet but you know does he throw much (laughs) feces i don't think so um i think maybe some of the other ones do okay Um, good but i would like to reiterate my pun for those of you that didn't hear it (laughs) i you Caesar. I did hear it. Good. It, it's good. Is that validate me? <laughs> yeah, we're in weird reverse mode. Normally, it's <laughs> desperate for validation. <laughs> Clearly, this podcast is working to satisfy my need for validation. What I'm slightly concerned about is that it's like gradually reversing our personalities. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting point when we become identical, right? That assumes that we're on some kind of spectrum of opposites. And links neatly back into the face merging. Oh, yes. So it does. We know exactly what that guy will be like. (laughs) Terrifying. (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm sure a lot of the people who know us well would say, oh, what's really the difference between the two of them anyway? (laughs) My supervisor, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Last thing, you just increased your salience and knowledge over time and my representation was kind of squeezed out. (laughs) I absorbed you like one of the big orby things in Osmos. Or like a twin whose other twin isn't viable. <laughs> oh. I'm really sorry. Can we, can we get back to the poop? Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. You see, this is the thing about the disgusting episode. So, yeah, <laughs> what they also found was that the connections within the brain were a lot stronger. There were real clear white matter differences 
great, uh, massive greater number of interconnections um, within the brain in these poop-throwing monkeys. And behaviorally, what these monkeys showed was better communication in general. And so what the researchers concluded... Not just poop-mediated communication. No, not just. But they concluded that this throwing was a form of tool use for the right. purpose of communication. <laughs> they missed a letter there, but otherwise fine. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, now, that's really good. I like that a lot. <laughs> uh, what, they, yeah, what they're saying is, is that the chimp equivalent of the internet is a ton of feces. <laughs> I think the internet equivalent of the internet. Wow, you're going to some real niche places, aren't you? <laughs> it's only metaphorical poop throwing on the internet. It is. <laughs> Nothing but. Um, and yeah, what they actually even go as far as saying is that throwing is the skill kind of selected for for communication in chimps at the evolutionary branching of chimps and humans from our common ancestor that we went for sounds i say we went for you know what I mean. and they went for poop and they went for <laughs> chucking things often <laughs> because that's often what they have to hand <laughs> whereas we had words <laughs> exactly. man think of that like oh all the great speeches in human history if only that like that one that one zygote and it could have been so much different that like imagine that ah oh, i have that i have poop. i have a dream i have a dream becomes i have some poop <laughs> uh, we will fight them on the beaches we, we will, will fight throw them with poop <laughs> with poop on the beaches ah <laughs> oh, scatological humor is is the best thing well, especially it really when it's is justified by science <laughs> yeah <laughs> science approved scat humor it's amazing so yes the, the final scientific point to note on this study uh, as i gleaned from it is that the throwing was not correlated with physical expertise in general that it is this kind of specific skill that some monkeys can develop so these monkey orators as it were aren't <laughs> necessarily you know the strongest monkey the fastest monkey but they are great at throwing and isn't that wonderful? <laughs> That's a different Daft Punk song. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's monkeys throwing poop, guys. It's actually the evolutionary course that if they'd somehow managed to beat us in the superiority stakes, that we right would now be you'd be covered some in kind of poop cast. This this podcast that would literally be me and you throwing poo at each other across a room. Yep, that's amazing. Aren't we glad that we went the other direction? <laughs> well, yeah. Wow. Well, of Good. course, that's the thing. is to monkeys. They're like speech. What's that, you know? Although it would bring whole new meanings to, uh, to you saying that I do nothing but come up with crap puns. Yep. I mean, we could keep going on that. You know? <laughs> it's amazing how it's kind of entered our language as an idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That. That is a surprisingly deep and interesting study about monkeys throwing poo. Yeah. So that's that's the thing we can learn about these disgustingness. We can learn oh, yeah. something about humanity. Less so maybe in the case of Landis. What we learn about humanity is that Landis maybe should have been introduced to Dexter Morgan. <laughs> As opposed to you. <laughs> do you want to hear do you want to hear um the last since we've kind of finished with the psychology you want to hear the last yes. option from the choose your own adventure uh belabored segue absolutely so uh this was if uh, if you had chosen house md this week i've been looking for a house to live in next year <laughs> at one point i was in contact with an estate agent who we shall call james because that was his name i sent james the following email Dear James, could we perhaps arrange a viewing of the property on Wednesday afternoon? Regards, Ben. James responded with the following. Dear Ben, of course, shall we say 11am? AM is an acronym for the term anti-meridium, which translates as before midday. It is therefore categorically not the afternoon. Anti is also the name for a mandatory initial bet in poker. Poker Face is a song by Lady Gaga released in 2008. The face is a central sense organ complex normally located on the ventral surface of the head, which in humans can be used, amongst other things, to convey expressions of disgust. Wow. Yeah. That one was a lot. I know, right? <laughs> and mainly an excuse to rag on my estate agent. 
<laughs> was he called James Wilson? That was what I was expecting. He wasn't. Uh, there, there were so many possible links back and forth. Uh, because, like, I thought I could probably work in some way of linking, like, my estate agent James to John Watson and then Emma Watson and all this stuff. Like, pick your own Watson. But, yeah. It was... Yeah. I'm just looking in, like, the uh, preparations you did for the flowchart. Um, what I notice is that there were going to be weasels. <laughs> of course there were. Because it's a choose-your-own-adventure book. So at some point, you have to get the bit where you come to a door that's guarded by three guards... One who speaks the truth, one who speaks lies, and in my case, one who doesn't provide any useful information but just provides awful puns the whole time. And they <laughs> were going to be weasels. And it was all going to yeah. be puns. We need a third person on this podcast to represent the third weasel, really. <laughs> I, I guess the lie weasel? Am I claiming that I always speak the truth? I don't know. Because you definitely win a pun weasel. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a really weird game. Anyway, should we say goodbye to our I'd listeners? I'd love to play what, Pun Weasel. Yes, let's say goodbye. As always, uh, if you if you have any feedback, um, if you wish to complain about the disgusting nature of this podcast, um, if you would like me to fully map out at some point the Choose Your Own Adventure belabored segue, uh, I'm sure nobody would, uh, then uh, <laughs> do get in contact with us. Uh, email at uh, t... Psychomediapodcast at gmail.com Maybe the reason I never get any feedback is I can't remember the name of the things. And on Twitter at Team Psychomedia. Also go and see the show notes on psychomedia.wordpress.com Leave a comment. And badger Tim at Tetratic Angel as usual. Like you always do. As yes. Yes, that's Anyway, till next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Psychomedia, a Welcome to the Madness production for the internet. This week's episode was brought to you by Landis & Co. Seasonal Gifts. Get your Christmas shopping done early this year with Landis & Co. Gift Catalogue, free with this week's episode. Are your parents art lovers? The Landis Catalogue includes a great selection of paintings and photographs, including stunning classical masterpieces, sombre religious iconography, and truly horrific illustrations from Jeffries and Maxwell's The Diseases of China. What about some perfume or aftershave for your spouse? Try a range of scents, including cinnamon, peppermint, and ammonia. And what about those kids? The Landis catalogue includes a great range of fun activities for the whole family. Perhaps the new hair-raising, buckets containing electrified water game. Watch out for Granny's pacemaker, kids. Also in the Bucket of Fun series, we announced the return of last year's best-selling Bucket of Live Frogs interactive board game. Plunging your hand into angry amphibians not visceral enough for your children? Well then, why not try our flagship product, the Langdis My First Childhood Trauma and French Revolution Reenactment Kit. Comes complete with a replica blunted scalpel, a live rat, and contact details for a number of affiliated counsellors. Landis & Co. You'll never forget the looks on their faces.